God's word for us today is from the book of 1 Peter in chapter 3. We will cover verses 18 all the way through verse 22. Um, I'll read that portion now. You can get ready by grabbing your sermon notes out of your worship folder and a pen. Great way to track along with the sermon, fill in those blanks, and then take this home with you to uh, take the sermon with you during the week. If you're uh, watching online, these sermon notes are posted on our website as well. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, the ark, only a few people eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the legal appeal to God for a good conscience. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is the Word of God. Why did God tell Noah to build the ark? I think if you asked 10 people on the street that question, 10 people would say, God told Noah to build the ark for the animals. That's who occupied it during the flood after all. But that answer is half right and therefore half wrong. Why did God tell Noah to build the ark? You know how big the ark was? One and a half football fields long. I think that's bigger than most cruise ships, isn't it? Uh, this was a mammoth water vehicle, water vessel. And uh, God intended for others than the animals to be on the ark. As a matter of fact, 1 Peter 3 told us exactly who was on the ark besides the animals. Noah and his family, eight people in all, were on the ark. And guess what? There was room for a lot more. That's God's message to the people of Noah's time as Noah was building this mammoth vessel and, and, and he hung on this vessel a vacancy neon light sign that said, everyone, welcome, come on aboard. And eight people out of the thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions in the world, eight people were saved on the ark. The rest were lost some of them pounding on the exterior of the ark as the rain and flood came. Let me in, let me in. Impossible. People who were supposed to be children of God didn't, didn't want to be children of God, and they showed it by their corrupted ways. People wanted to live independent from God, to make their own choices, to be without God's instructions, and, and just became over, over and over the years corrupt, more influenced by the people around them than by God. And so, we read this in Genesis chapter 6, God saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that this is a condemning statement, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. 
God said, I am grieved that I have made them. This hurt God so much. His heart hurt. I am grieved that I have made them. I will wipe them from the face of the earth. It happened again. Not a worldwide flood because the rainbow promises that there will never ever again be a worldwide flood, but there will be a worldwide judgment. There will be a universal time when everyone on earth will be held accountable and and will either die outside of God and suffer forever or be saved and be with God forever. Uh, Jesus actually predicted it would happen. And so Luke 17, these are Jesus' words. And listen to him, how Jesus connects the days of Noah to the days that, that precede Judgment Day when Jesus referring him to himself as the Son of Man when he'll come the second time. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Why did God make you? If you believe in evolution, then your answer to that is going to be a different question than, or different answer than if you believe in creation. Evolution says that we don't have a creator, that we were created by chance and by accident, and therefore, if you believe in evolution, why do you exist? What's your purpose? Your purpose is survival of the fittest. Your your purpose is to serve who? Who first? Me, right? To serve yourself. That's life without God. You don't believe in a God and a God to whom you're accountable? You're going to live like an evolutionist. That's like all the people did in Noah's day except for eight of them. I am here to take care of me. I'm number one. I'm self-centered. It's all about me. I have to take care of me. I need to be happy. God wants me to be happy, and so I'm going to use what it takes to be happy. That can be food. That can be drink. That can be sex. I am in charge of myself. God, thank you. I am going to be independent of your instructions for me, God, thank you, and I exist for myself. I can fulfill all my passions and desires. I don't care what you say, God. I don't care if it hurts you because it makes me happy. I can hear what you have to say, God, and ignore it. I can even neglect what you have to say and not care about it. And if it hurts your heart, I don't care. It makes me happy because I am here to serve me. I'm so good at saying that, because guess what? I observe that in all of you all the time, but I see it in the mirror all the time, too. That, that little Darren in me that wants life to be all about me, and that is dangerous and deadly and setting me up to perish forever, and that scares me. If that little you inside of you doesn't scare you too, then it's my job today to make you scared. And I hope I am. 
Jesus said it. As it was in the days of Noah, it will be. In the days of the Son of Man, people eating and drinking and being married. Food and drink and sex rules our culture. Don't let it rule you. You rule it. And a flood destroyed them all. And God said, Ouch. It's not what God wants. God didn't create the human race to kill them. His heart was grieved because he had to, or it all would have gone to waste. But, but he saved some. So as I worked in this First Peter 3 section, uh, it really hit me how similar Noah and Jesus are. And how incredible it was in, in 1 Peter 3, Noah and Jesus preached to the same people. Did you catch that as I read 1 Peter chapter 3? Noah and Jesus preached to the same people. Noah, for 120 years. I don't know if he was building the ark for that entire amount of time, but that's when God says, my spirit will not contend with man forever. I give them 120 years. He was giving the world a 120-year warning period. Be prepared. The world is going to end by a flood. Here, there's this big, big, big barge. You can get on it. And Noah, by his, by his hammer and by his saw, preached. He probably talked a lot too. And he preached. And he said to his neighbors and he said to his friends and he said to all the gawkers who came by to look at this big boat, repent. Turn from your wicked ways. God is coming. The world will end. Eh, all of them but seven others, his own family, shrugged and said, crazy preacher. And then Jesus preached to those same people. Did you catch that in 1 Peter 3? It said that, that, that Jesus was put to death in the body and then made alive in the spirit. So this is Jesus, dies on the cross, goes to the tomb. He's dead. On the third day, he becomes alive and the first thing he does when he becomes alive, before he shows himself to the disciples and to Mary, right? And before, before he reveals himself as resurrected, before he does that, he descends into hell. We say it in our creeds. He descends into hell to do what? First Peter 3 says, right? To, to make a proclamation to the, to the imprisoned spirits. These are the spirits of unbelievers who have died, who are in hell, and Jesus doesn't go there on a mission trip. No one goes to hell on a mission trip because no one escapes hell, ever. Jesus went there with a message. First Peter 3 says he preached to the same people that Noah preached to, the, pre the people who thought Noah was a fool. And now Jesus says, Noah preached repent before it's too late. And now Jesus goes to hell and he preaches it's too late. And their hearts are filled with regret. We should have listened. We should have stopped our wicked ways. We should have bowed down before God in humble repentance and said, we're sorry, God. And Jesus says, it's, 
is too late to the very people Noah preached. Jesus is like Noah in many ways, and and 1 Peter 3 brings that out. Um, This part of verse 18 says this. It, It talks about Jesus, and this is true of Noah too, was the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Right? Genesis says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. That didn't mean he was perfect and holy, but it meant he, he didn't live the, in the corruptible ways that his neighbors and his co-workers did. They couldn't put the, point the finger at Noah and say, look what he did, he is terrible. But he could to them. And he found favor in the eyes of God. He was a righteous man. And the wooden beams of the ark held him up buoyed by the waters, the storm waters. And through the whole journey, Noah was saying to others, repent, come on board, welcome, vacancy, join me, don't drown. Noah the righteous was going about his work for the unrighteous and only saved himself and seven others. Look at this statement. I'm going to to post it here, uh, projected. It's on the sermon notes as well. The wooden beams holding a righteous man met the waters sent as an act of God to result in life, not death. Okay, I'm packing a lot in there. This is true of Noah and it's true of Jesus. The flood was very destructive, wasn't it? Worldwide destruction. I mean, and cataclysmic. I mean, we're, we're thinking continents moved and, and there, there's water vapor in the sky that, that kind of like this fog today, that, that it all fell down. And after that, there wasn't as much of a water canopy anymore. In the sky. I mean, things of nature radically shifted all around our planet. And the world was destroyed, the Bible says. But the flood didn't only destroy the flood saved. In the grand scheme of things, the flood saved the planet because it recovered. But spiritually speaking, relationally speaking, about people, the flood saved eight people. The waters of the flood that crashed other people and animals against trees and against mountains and, and they got squished between clefts of rock. And, and think of all the debris that was floating everywhere and knocking people out and smashing them against the side of the ark. I'm trying to be graphic here, but that's the way it was, right? And then uh, that very water that was doing all that bad stuff buoyed and floated the ark above the mountaintops, above all the rocks, so it bounced safely on the waters, and it, and it didn't crash. The waters that killed some saved others. The wooden beams of the ark that, that prevented some from coming in after it was too late, those very beams welcomed and saved Noah and his family, eight people, So the wooden beams holding a righteous man met the water sent as an act of God to result in life, not death. The same God 
who, who judges those who want to live without him, who want to be corrupt and not listen to him, who refuse his promises and his grace, the same God who, de- who acts in judgment on those people acts in mercy on those who are willing to repent, who are willing to say, I'm, I'm too corrupt, God, more than I should be, who are willing to listen to the come aboard, who are willing to see the vacancy sign and say, bring me on. I have nothing to give you, God, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And those wooden beams of the second Noah, those wooden beams of the cross, also held a righteous man. The second Noah, Jesus Christ. And the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. The wooden beams of the cross are are the wooden aspect And so what are the waters when we're talking about Jesus? Well, nothing but the waters of baptism. You have wood and water in the flood that saved Noah and his family. You have wood and water, the cross of Jesus and baptism that save us today. Repent, they tell us. The kingdom of God is near. Come on board. Everyone, welcome. Are we going to ignore that message? So, so let's spend a little bit of time on baptism now um, because it's so worth it. Um, I want to, there's some myths and some misunderstandings about baptism that are out there. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever believed this because I'm sure a lot of you have because um, I talk to people all the time about baptism. But we have, I, I want to be very clear about baptism because when we are, it is the greatest comfort and strength and inspiration that we can find. But if we believe any of these myths or misunderstanding, it, it, it confuses that, it makes it foggy, it takes some of that away. So here are some. Myth about baptism, number one. Baptism is a church ceremony that magically casts a spell on you, and when you're baptized, it casts this spell on you and makes you a denomination. Like if you're baptized in the Methodist church, I'm, I'm, I'm talking as a six-day-old, okay? Infant baptism. You're Methodist. Well, why? I don't know. Just, it was Methodist water. You're baptized Roman Catholic? You're Roman Catholic. Were you baptized in the name of Pope Francis? No. Baptized in the name of Pope John Paul? I hope not. In the Roman Catholic Church, as far as I know, they still offer baptism to infants in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If I have baptized you or your babies, I'm not baptizing you into Martin Luther. I'm baptizing you into Jesus Christ. So you can call yourself, after you're baptized, a Christian, a Christ person, and a child of God adopted into God's family. We'll make you Lutheran later when we teach you all about it. But for now, your little tykes, 
before they learn about the Bible and about Lutheran teaching, they're, they're God's children. And they're just, they're Lutheran by association, really, but they're Christian and they're children of God. So baptism is not a church ceremony, church ceremony that casts a spell on someone to make them a denomination. Um, I say that for your, for your comfort, actually. If you're baptized outside the Lutheran church and it's a Trinitarian baptism and it uses water, it's a valid baptism. We don't rebaptize people who are baptized in other denominations because you're not baptized into a denomination. We'll teach you about it later. Um, that's good stuff. Secondly, second myth. Baptism is a symbol that represents a cleansing of sorts, kind of like taking a bath. Uh, nothing actually happens. It's not an act of God. It's just a, it's a, it's a nice photo op for us to see that the person is, has committed their life to Jesus. Okay? That makes baptism something that we do for God, something that we say, God, I'm giving this to you. I'm giving you me like God needs me. I'm showing you how much I love you, God. That the scripture speaks about baptism at the the other way, that baptism is a gift of God to us, and God is saying, this is how much I love you, I'm making you my child. So baptism isn't a symbol, it's not something that we do. Um, baptism, it says in 1 Peter 3, saves you, it says it twice in there. Baptism saves you, and it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's what's powerful. So baptism doesn't just clean you up, baptism kills you and gives you a new life, and that's good. Uh, Paul says in Romans 6, through baptism, we're dead to sin, but alive to God. What baptism kills uh, doesn't kill you physically, but it kills you spiritually. When you're baptized, it kills your sin. It kills the curse that sin has over you, so it cannot make you guilty. It, it kills the power that sin has over you, so sin and temptation doesn't own you and cannot tell you what to do. You own them. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're a new person. It, it doesn't just clean you up, it kills you. It drowns the old, sinful, self-centered me and destroys it like the flood destroyed unbelievers. An unbelieving, ungodly me can't tell me what to do and doesn't make my life miserable and I'm not cursed because of that. That, that Darren died in baptism and the new Darren rises like Jesus rose from the dead and lives a new life. Born again, we say. So, 1 Peter 3 talks about a legal appeal to God for a good conscience, right? That's what that's what baptism does for us. We make, we, our conscience convicts us, makes us feel terrible, makes us feel unprepared, makes us feel like we're ungodly. And, and baptism says, just make an appeal to God. Go to God. You have greater authority than your conscience. You go to him and, and he'll give you a good conscience because baptism kills the cursed you and gives birth to a new you, and you'll be prepared, and you'll be ready. And Jesus will say, welcome aboard. I thought of my dad last week. It was, uh, it was his first birthday, 
where he's in heaven and he's not on this earth last week, the Friday after Thanksgiving. Uh, my dad died and went to heaven in January of this year. And so that brought some memories about as I thought about him and celebrated Thanksgiving with family. And some of my, uh, some of my favorite memories of, of, as a kid with my dad have to do with water. I don't know why they just do. We lived in south-central Minnesota. It's not necessarily coastal, but uh, land of 10,000 lakes. And so uh, a lot of, I grew up with my dad fishing, um, and, and I still like fishing. don't have a lot of opportunity to do it. But as a kid, I just loved going fishing with my dad, spending time together on the lake. And then when the kids got a little older, not too old, five-year-old, seven-year-old, dad bought a boat, this cheap old thing. I think he... I think it was repossessed or something, but uh, he bought it, and we, uh, we started to have fun on the lake with it, and started with a little sled thing, and then graduated to inner tube, and then graduated to skis, and then slalom skiing, and then barefoot skiing through the, through the years, and just treasured memories on the water with my dad. Um, here's the best memory. When I was a little tyke, and we were at a cabin up north, this is just the most ingrained memory one of the most ingrained memories I've had of my dad. I, I can still visualize it. I was, I was a little tyke, I don't know, three years old. I was running out onto the pier without a life jacket on. Into the water I go. I don't know if I slipped or I, I don't know what I, but I remember being in the water and I couldn't swim. And I remember I can still see the bubbles in the water floating up and flailing as I'm going under and going down. And then the next thing I thought, I thought a whale was swallowing me. And I thought I was like, like Jonah, uh, the prophet, because something was grabbing me and it actually scared me worse than going down into the water. And now I'm like, this, now the, I'm not only drowning, the monster is getting me. And the monster was my dad who pulled me up out of the water and saved me from drowning. I was three years old. So that's a good memory. Uh, he's my hero. But there's one other area of appreciation where I, I appreciate my dad, and it has to do with water, where he didn't save me from drowning. Where he let me drown. And it has changed my life. And because of my baptism where my dad and my mom brought me, little tyke, to the waters of infant baptism. He put me there to drown me because he knew that I have a little sinful, self-centered Darren on the inside that needs to die. And the new Darren in Jesus Christ that needs to rise to life. And it happened. And it happens every day as in repentance I remember my baptism and I remember that I have a dad who's closer to me and more faithful to me and more powerful in my life than even my earthly dad and that's my heavenly father. And he loves me and he smiles at me despite who I am. And he's joyful about me and he gives me promises that are otherworldly and they take me through this world and through this life. And that's what baptism does for you too. It drowns the sinful nature in us and raises us to a new life. No food, you do not control me. No alcohol, I'm not going to live under your domination. 
No sex. I don't care what kind of desires you bring to my plate. If God's not happy with them, I'm not either. No married life. You don't exist for me. I exist for you. Those are difficult decisions that we face on a daily basis. And as much as the resurrection of Jesus Christ gave him power over all authorities, your baptism gives you power over sin and its control. And it makes you prepared for the floods and storms of this world. And you get on the ark with Noah. And you can say, I'm ready. And Jesus will come soon. Until then, float, live, praise God for your baptism. You are a child of God. Amen.